Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Deadhead Cannabis Show. I'm Larry Mishkin of Mishkin Law in Chicago, uh, joined, as always, by Rob Hunt of Lene Holdings out in San Diego and our ace producer, Dan Humiston, wherever the hell in the world he is today. Uh, Happy New Year to everybody. Uh, Welcome back. Uh, We missed you guys. And Rob, man, great selection today. Uh, I'm going to let you explain it all, but I love New Year's with the dead, so go ahead and tell us all about it. Well, first of all, happy 2023 to you, Larry and Dan, and to everyone out there. I hope everyone had an amazing New Year's night. And we figured, even though it's a cool days past New Year's, uh, always good to start the new year off with a new show talking about the uh, the the fun that we've had in New Year's past. So what I thought was uh, maybe we'll do a show about just some highlights from Grateful Dead New Year's in the past, uh, starting with 50 years ago today in 1972 and working all the way through until the final time the Grateful Dead played in New Year's, which was in 1231-1991 from the Oakland Coliseum. So, you know, with that, uh, we, we figured we'd throw out some of the, the cool highlights and kind of do a, um, a, a number line of every five years or so that the Dead played in New Year's, which for them was always one of their most fun nights to play. A lot of times they had uh, special guests. We'll, we'll feature a couple of those tonight as well. You know, usually pretty raucous and, you know, people have heard the stories, everything from the closing of the Winterland to, uh, you know, other nights where, you know, Bill Graham would come flying in above the audience, either as a joint or as Father Time or as the Golden Gate Bridge or whatever it was they had in store for us. Uh, the Grateful Dead spared no expense and, and no creativity on their New Year's uh, traditions. I think it inspired a lot of other bands to start doing the same later. So uh, I, I never actually got to see a Grateful Dead New Year's. I'm sorry to say I was there for the 1990-91 run, but did uh, did not have a ticket for New Year's night. Got the three nights before that, but missed uh, missed the actual New Year. I was in the parking lot listening on FM radio, but not quite the same. But Larry, I know you got to see a couple, including I think one or two of the ones that we're playing tonight. I did. I My first was in 84. I saw 85, and I did see uh, 87, which I believe that countdown was from. And, uh, you know, to me, I would always be at the show, and, you know, you go through that moment where you think, well, you know, here I'm in a grateful show with buddies and stuff, but, you know, is it right to be away from your from your family, from your parents, from your this? And as soon as the, the balloons would drop, I'd say, hell yes, it is. Where else do you want to be in the world in the first minute and a half of a new year, standing in the Oakland Coliseum or the San Francisco Civic Center, for God's sakes, with the Grateful Dead ripping into Sugar Magnolia or in the Midnight Hour. Or one year, I think it was Hell in a Bucket, which we all kind of laughed about. But even still, that's where you want to be with the boys on New Year's Eve and with like-minded people all around you. And uh, uh, it's a great experience. So uh, even though we're a couple of days past the new year here, uh, I think it's nice to go back and uh, and recollect and take a look at that. So good job. Well, thanks. We should uh, we should just jump right into it then, you know. Uh, I think the uh, the first thing I, I pulled out was an old old version of Mexicali Blues from uh, twelve thirty one nineteen seventy two from the Winterland. So maybe let's uh, let's jump in and listen to a bit of that. I think Mexicali is such a, a fun song, and I know it gets the, uh, the you know, the, the connotations from some saying that you know they aren't a huge fan of the lyrics, as we heard from one of our guests about a year and a half ago. But I always look at it as you know, kind of a, a great party song. I love the uh, the horn intro on the studio version. 
I love the way that uh, the, the horn style, I think uh, Jerry even started using the MIDI in the later years to, uh, to emulate the horn style and uh, get Mexicali kind of back to that, uh, which is a really, really fun sound. And uh, 1972, I think were some of the fastest and like more fiesta or festive um, uh, Mexicalis out there. Well, you know, always typically being one pillar on one end or the other of the Bobby Cowboy tune angle that the shows would always take, you know, and, you know, they'd, they'd pair it up with uh, all sorts of good stuff. And, uh, you know, Bobby would have a fun time with it. But, you know, here's the thing about New Year's. To me, those songs are all great tunes, uh, you know, but they were tunes like you'd hear a lot. You, you would always, it was hard to go on tour and not pick up four or five Mexicali blues. And even though it's always fun to hear, you know, by the end, you're like, okay, I've heard this one enough bring something new in but when you're at new year's eve it didn't really matter what they played it was just you know you're at a new year's eve party and the grateful dead is the band and i'm like man this is new year's eve guys you play whatever the hell you want to play and i will just be happy to be here with you and this is great stuff and it always seemed the new year shows a little more energetic a little more charged up you know because normally right they would, well, i guess the dead would what typically come on around 10 o'clock play their set take a break and then turn the second set uh, into uh, New Year's Eve, although, of course, closing of Winterland, they actually started the four-and-a-half-hour show at, at New Year's Eve. But by the time I caught them a few years later, uh, maybe they were too tired to do that, right? But even, but even you know, if you were at a regular show by 10 or 11, you know, you'd already be in the winding down stages, and here you are just kicking off, and you're like, man, I got to have the energy one way or another uh, that's going to take me into midnight and past that. And, you know, you, you just feel the energy in the place, and you know what great fun yeah no doubt that's you know i've seen a ton of other bands play new year's shows but uh but it's a great regret of mine in, in my grateful dead career i've never seen a grateful dead new year's for all the reasons you just mentioned i don't know if you saw any of the canvas news out recently but when i hear mexicali i always you know sort of think uh you know the more latino side of, of the grateful dead and that you know makes me think of uh the fact that uh, it looks like columbia is going to legalize cannabis finally so I, I know that they've been talking about it for a while but it looks like it's cleared both chambers and uh in, in their parliament or senate and uh, now is going to be implemented as early as june do you see that i did and look we talk about you know people want to talk about kind of like you know maybe a tidal wave of marijuana in the united states is state by state falls and although i was having dinner last night with uh, uh, a niece and uh, she goes to school in vanderbilt and uh we were talking about how the wave quite hasn't reached them yet but you know it'll it'll get there and uh you know, a lot of places will in the United States, but it's happening around the world, right? It, it's, it's just amazing to see. My youngest son uh, was in Israel for two weeks, and uh, although he was very smart and listened to his parents' uh, strong advice about uh, uh, bringing anything of his own to take over there, uh, apparently these days in Israel, finding uh, cannabis is not such an impossible task anymore. So yeah, I think of Israel as a place like Wow, really? It's it's just amazing, and but yeah, it, it it it's happening all over the world, and I think the truth of the matter is what we're gonna you know again find uh, is that cannabis is gonna be a thing that's gonna unite the world, right? We're all human beings, so we all interact with cannabis, but we've all kind of found it on our own, and hats off to Colombia, you know, and and don't you have to say that? Of course, my recollection of Colombia with drugs always was when we would get our hands on high times magazine and they'd have the drug reviews in the back you know and they'd be talking about cocaine and colombian was always pure as the driven snow 
And I thought, wow, you know, boy, that just the way they, you know, describe it or whatever. Now here they are going legit. Good for them. Yeah, look, and from the perspective of, uh, of growing cannabis, it is right on the border. Excuse me, right on the equator, which uh, which means that in terms of an outdoor climate, Colombia is about as good as it gets. It's a good tropical climate. It's got multiple Appalachians for the outdoor or greenhouse market, but it is twelve twelve sunlight all the time, which means you know you can keep your your plants pretty much in perpetual flower all year long with very very minimal changes to uh, to the amount of light that you need to to put into the greenhouse. So I expect that market will be pretty interesting. People have been looking at it for years. I know a lot of companies moved down to Columbia prematurely about four or five years ago. But, you know, now perhaps they, uh, the moves they made were you know a bit more prescient than we thought. The question is whether or not there'll be an export canvas out of Columbia. The question is who would buy it. You certainly can't send it to the United States, which is the biggest consumer market. No one in Europe right now is accepting, you know, canvas coming from other countries. But, you know, as you said, there, there is a domino effect that's just not happening state by state, but country by country. And, we're watching Germany very closely right now. We're watching a couple other European countries very closely right now. Once you actually start seeing the first real export import happening from from different uh, from different countries, you'll start to see what this global market is going to look like. Because ultimately, it's going to make sense to uh, to produce in very inexpensive places. And whether that's Colombia, whether that's Mexico, or you know Honduras or Guatemala, you know there's lots of places that it makes a lot of sense to start cultivating cannabis that are not the United States. Which is one reason I caution the U.S. Like, Get it together, guys. You know, you got to figure this out because if not, you know, ultimately by the time you do legalize, there might be other groups who have already set up their infrastructure and now we're an import country instead of an export country. And, uh, you know, if you believe that legalization is going to happen around the world, which I think a lot of us do, I mean, Thailand's certainly going through their experimentation right now. It's, it, every continent has their, their kind of key place where the laws are changing, whether it's, you know, Australasia or whether it's you know, Southeast Asia or Europe. All that's going through a, a big change right now in canvas policy. So, so I see Colombia lead the way for, for Latin behind Uruguay, I guess. But uh, but we should be seeing a lot more of this coming up soon. Yeah, I hope so. Look, it, it, it just it it makes the world a nicer place when, you know, you can go wherever you want and understand that, you know, you can uh, enjoy and engage in uh, other things you like to do down there, just like you can do at home. We all know you can go anywhere in the world and get a good beer. So, you know, why can't you go anywhere in the world and be able to get a good joint? And uh, as, as the countries come online, in fact, we'll be able to do that. And uh, I think that'll be a great thing and make the world a little bit smaller place. Yeah, for sure. Well, let's get back into the festive part of the show. And uh, let's, let's think about some other New Year's. As, sure. Uh, as you know, the Winterland was the, the Grateful Dead's hub for New Year's for many years uh, until they tore it down, I think, 1231-78 being the final show. But uh, the year prior in 77, which is 45 years ago for, for New Year's, Dead played a pretty ripping show that night, and arguably, you know, the end of '77 would be about as good a time to celebrate the Grateful Dead as any other any other time in their history. As '77, by many people, uh, I think would say it was probably the best year the Grateful Dead ever played as a total year. But uh, that Winterland show was was no different. So maybe we'll play a short little clip from that and see you on the other side.
I'm glad you played that one, Rob. I am a uh, a big fan of supplication, right? Which was typically paired uh, with lazy lightning. You know, two Bob tunes that I think were more from his Kingfish days, but ultim- ultimately adopted by the Grateful Dead and always played very well. But it just it didn't see it, it, when I first started seeing him in the early '80s. It seemed like I'd hear it a lot more, and then. I don't know exactly when the last time they played it was, but it just felt like I saw it less and less as time went on. And it's really a, it's really a great song. You know, it's, it's, it's a, it's a Barlow Weir song and uh, Bobby always really enjoyed it. Always ripped on it. And uh, great lyrics. If you stop and read them too, it's fun. Yeah, it is fun. And I think, you know, paired with lazy lightning, that's, that's a pairing that, you know, I really wish I'd gotten to see, you know, it's sort of like uh, the lost sailor saint combo that Bobby did, you know, or, or weather report. There were certain combos that got shelved for a long time or just put away all together that, or, you know, they'd only keep one song the way they keep let it grow or keep, um, say, a circumstance. But uh, Lazy Lightning Supplication, I think, for the 80s was as good a Bobby pairing as you were going to get. Uh, I, I don't think I ever got to see the combo, unfortunately, which is, uh, you know, but again, time, time and error, right? But on this particular one, you want to talk about a great song to go into the countdown. In 87, they, they did the, the Lazy Lightning Supplication and then went to the New Year's Countdown and then came out of that, I believe, with a... Um, with a sugar mag scarlet fire. Yeah, that's exactly what it was. So uh, what a way to have, you know, five tunes in a row as far as like straight party tunes. What a great way to, to end the year and a great way to start the year, huh? Well, they were good at that. You know, the, that was one of the things that they were good at. They knew how to have a good time. And, uh, you know, uh, for a band that often got a rap for not always being tuned into what was going on around them, uh, I think on New Year's Eve, it was car- hard even for them to kind of ignore it. And, uh, you know, and also as a band that I think sometimes got tagged with, you know, reliably failing to live up to the situation that didn't apply at new year's new year's they 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 just came out and uh they were they really let it go it was fun for them it was fun for the audience um you know all of a sudden at two o'clock in the morning you realize oh my god i'm at a grateful dead show at two o'clock in the morning and this is you know they're ripping we're ripping this is just uh i don't think you get any better yeah that's the other thing that i I think people forget that most venues close at 11 o'clock at night right so to actually get the uh, the variance, like you know the noise variance or whatever other you know, variance is needed from the cities that you're in, it, it wasn't a tough thing. Like even today, like bands have a tough time. I guess there's like you know special rules or special dispensation like provided to venues on New Year's Eve, but you know that might be till twelve twelve thirty. The Grateful Dead were pulling stuff off. And they're like, okay, we want to finish at four or we want to finish at five, and uh, you know that's that's a tough thing to do. I can't imagine unless you're in like New Orleans or Vegas or New York City or Chicago. There aren't too many cities in America that uh, that are all that happy to know that there's going to be a major event happening with a bunch of revelers at you know three or four in the morning, and uh, for some reason these guys were always able to pull it off. And I, I got to think that a lot of this is due to the um, the creative genius of Bill Graham and the uh, the ability for him to get things through City Hall and the relationship he built us. You know, San Francisco's king of being an impresario and uh, you know rock concert promoter, but. They pulled off some pretty cool stuff as a result of, of their New Year's runs. I don't disagree, although, you know, the Oakland Alameda County Coliseum is what? It's in the middle of a warehouse district with a double-decker highway running right next to it. So I always kind of imagine that maybe that's why they moved out there. When I saw them in the San Francisco Civic Center in 84, it was a great venue, an amazing venue. And even there, you were kind of stumbling out into the middle of downtown. I didn't really get the feeling after the show like we were disturbing, you know, neighborhoods or anything. But nonetheless, you had... 10 or 15,000 stone deadheads stumbling out into the street at three o'clock in the morning. And although we all had our little bagel and orange juice, but somebody had to keep an eye on us. Yeah, for sure. And Oakland, you're absolutely right. Oakland Coliseum, there's nothing around it. You got, you know, back then the Sam's Hofbrau house was, was right there. And 
a bunch of cheap motels that, uh, you know, were overrun by deadheads. But, you know, it's more a question of like putting everyone back on the highway at four o'clock in the morning or three o'clock in the morning after uh, a night of partying that, you know, it, it takes it takes a little bit of uh, of uh, what's the right word, I guess, uh, for the, the police officers or the police union say, yeah, we'll let this one slide. So it is New Year's. So there, there had to be a fair amount of um, of uh, conversation going back and forth there. But New Year's, uh, you know, hopefully you had a, a fun New Year's this year. New Year's to me is always always a really fun night, uh, no matter where you are. And as long as you're with the right people and, and finding something fun to do. But uh, to your point, going out and seeing music is, to me, like always the best place to be with a bunch of friends. Yeah. What, what's, what was your favorite New Year's? What was of all the- my favorite New Year's of, of all of them, I think, was 1984. Because really, it was my first one that I ever saw. I was with some really good friends. We had gotten our hands on some uh, really good uh, psychedelic material that uh, we had always hoped if we were in San Francisco, it just might come from Owsley. But of course, there was no way to know in 1984 that it didn't just come from the guys down the street. But either way, we, we, we had a great time. And you know, they, they had a real full third set with five or six tunes. It was my first um, Give Me Some Lovin' that I heard him play. You know, just great fun to come stumbling out into the streets of San Francisco. And then a whole group of people went to drive up to the top of Mount Tam to watch the sunrise. So, you know, it was, uh, it was like a full, full blown, uh, event for a guy. I mean, by that point I had probably seen about 25 or 30 dead shows, but, you know, going out for new year's and being part of all of this, you know, really felt kind of special. Like, you know, now, now I'm really moving into the big leagues guys. I'm, I'm seeing new year's shows. Did you get any special guests that night? Yeah, they it was actually that night. That's funny. I remember because I the the opening acts were um, a Tower of Power, who was great, but then they they brought in a local a cappella group called the Bobs, and I'll never forget this name, the Bobs. And there was like five of them and six of them, and they were up on the stage and they were you know singing tunes a cappella style and not even so much rock and roll tunes, just tunes where they could harmonize and. You know that nobody cared. Everybody was just you know getting ready and doing their thing and minding their business. You know, waiting until the dead would ultimately come out. But uh, it wasn't like seeing you know the Nevels in '87. Uh, well, it's funny you mentioned uh, Tower of Power because the next clip I was going to play actually features Tower of Power, uh, 1984. Excuse me, 1982, 1231, Tower of Power came out, and uh, this time was joined by an extra special guest in Etta James, and uh, pretty much just dominated the stage for a little bit. So. Well, let me play a quick clip of that. Baby, here I am, I'm a girl on the scene. Got to give you what you want, but you got to go home with me. Hey, I got some good old love, and then I got some in store. When I get through throwing it home, She's a force out of James. Absolutely incredible. Here's the thing about this, right? Everybody, I mean, for me, my whole experience with Too Hard to Handle, uh, like, served as a great introduction to Pigpen. You know, it was it was like you know one of one of Pigpen's you know favorite tunes to sing, and and he would just really go crazy on it. And I always used to think anybody who sang it after him, you know, like the Black Crows, were always trying to live up to his standard. But the truth of the matter is you bring in somebody like Etta James and her voice and you just realize, 
I mean, all those other guys are great, but she's, you know, that that's that's beyond amazing to hear her just crank away like that. And then you put Oakland's like hometown sons in the Tower of Power horn section. And those guys were like straight fire. Like anytime they got on stage, it's kind of, I don't know if you've ever gotten to see Widesford play, I play with Dirty Dozen, but, uh, or, or Fish play with the, the giant country horns. But anytime you put like a really good brass section, you know, backing a really good band, it just adds such a huge element. And Tower of Power, I mean, I, I, I've seen uh, videos of those guys. That was a full horn section. You know, it's a lot of them. the same way that, you know, some of the New Orleans uh, horn sections are. But Tower of Power, in terms of funk, those guys got down. Like, I would anytime just go see those guys play by themselves without, like, any other, like, band around them. You know, it was like a straight horn band, just a funk horn band. And uh, The Grateful Dead with Tower of Power and Etta James together, forget about it. Like, I couldn't think of a more fun way to kick it in New Year's than to have those guys on stage together. No, I, I think you're right about that, you know, because a lot of it, just so much of it has to do you know, with the personality of, of these musicians and who are these guys and, you know, and, and, you know, somebody like Etta James, you know, you just know, you know, you go to see her and it's going to be an amazing show no matter, you know, she's like, a, you know, one of those performers who brought it every night. Yeah, every show was like a special show. Every performance by hers was, you know, you felt like you were really catching something and, you know, to pair her up with the, with the dead or with uh, Tower of Power who came out with that same kind of energy. You know, the, these guys, and when I say these guys, I guess I really mean Bill Graham, right? We're, weren't that stupid in terms of, of, of being able to pair people up and really create memorable, memorable experiences for the fans. And, and I think, you know, Graham should get a lot of credit for that in the sense that, you know, it'd be very easy to just say, okay, we're going to cram you all in here, let you listen to the Grateful Dead and then send you home. But he made a whole evening of it. He made it fun, right? It was, it was a whole experience. It wasn't just a rock concert, you know, back in 84 and you're walking out the door and they're handing you a bagel and a thing of orange juice and a little tab of cream cheese. And you're like, who does this kind of thing? Whoever sends you out into the street at night and, and gives you food or anything. And, uh, I, you know, Steve Parrish likes to talk about Bill Graham all the time, you know, very reverentially and rightfully so, because I guess Parrish was just starting out when, uh, you know, he was first uh, exposed to Bill Graham and the kind of guy he was. But uh, if you're going to talk about New Year's Eve and the Grateful Dead, you know, it, it's really impossible not to talk about Bill Graham, right? He died, I think we were talking right before the 91 New Year's shows. And the band really was like, no, no, we've signed the papers. We're going to go do it. And they did, but they never did New Year's after that. And, you know, it could be for a lot of reasons. Jerry had had some health issues and some other stuff. Um, but I like to think that without, you know, Bill Graham there pulling the strings and, and making all the planning that nobody else really felt they could step in and fill those shoes. Right. You, get, you guys have to play. What do you mean you're not playing New Year's? Of course you're playing New Year's. Get out there. Like, I've already booked a venue. Of course we're going. Yeah, I'm pretty sure Bill Graham was, uh, was instrumental as long as there's no one pushing him. I mean, look, I think everyone wants to spend New Year's with their, with their loved ones. And, you know, sometimes, like, you want to go out there and, uh, and rage all night. But if you're the musician on stage and you know, you're doing it for everyone else's benefit, I'm sure there's times you're like, ah, oh, man, I can't be bothered this year. Like, oh, let's go do something else. Especially as those guys are getting to be in their, uh, you know, early early 50s, late 40s. You know, they probably hit a point. And I don't think they've really played New Year's since then in any iteration. You know, I, I can't think of, you know, a, a dead and co show on New Year's or a, or a further show on New Year's. Like, I think New Year's for the Grateful Dead members ended in 1991. And, you know, to your point, uh, coinciding with the, the passing of Bill. Yeah. Time to move on. You know, it's uh, sad, but uh, we keep rocking. So that's the good news. Before we get into our next song, though, you, you sent me over a story to read. And I, I, I'm going to let you talk about it because I, I've got a delicate stomach. <laughs> Yeah, look, I mean, talking about things that are hard to handle. I don't know how much you know about Colorado River toads, but, uh, you know, from what I understand, 
relatively hard to handle. So you, you always hear the, uh, the the stories of people licking toes for psychedelic experiences, which, by the way, I strongly advocate for. You know, if you're uh, if you're able to find a toad, lick it. That seems to me to be a lot easier than than you know a lot of other ways to get high. But uh, the the story is right now that's just recently come out is that the the feds have been telling national parks uh, visitors in certain parks like, hey, you know stop tracking these toads down and licking them for, you know, your, your DMT high, which sounds outrageous. The feds need to tell anyone to do that. But, uh, and it seems even more outrageous. There's actually enough people out there that are doing this to, to cause some sort of a PSA that, uh, that needs to go out. But, uh, I, I thought the story was a great one when we're talking about, you know, a hard to handle and B, you know, just the, uh, the party of new year's, uh, you know, <laughs> it's like, you look at your buddy next to you, like, Hey man, you know, did you, did you bring any ass? He's like, no, man, but I brought this toad. <laughs> like get, get it on this action uh, so that, that, that's why i sent over the story my fear for a new year's story it'd be a fun one wasn't that a south park episode where they were all trying to get towed uh it might have been but the original one that i know of was um was a simpsons episode where homer homer was really high and, and, and marge is like marge is like are you licking toads again homer and he's like I'm not not licking toads, Marge. Yes. Okay. I'm sorry. It was The Simpsons. Look, it, it, it's a great concept, and, and you, you can recommend it all you want. You can tell me it's the greatest stuff in the world, but the odds of me picking up a live toad and licking its back, I would say, are less than zero. Yeah. Uh, it's, uh, I, I, would, I would give it a shot, but I was also the guy that read the anarchist, anarchist cookbook as a kid and tried every single thing in there. That was your home remedy of how to get high, whether it was you know banana peels or or, you know, all sorts of other seeds. I was, I was the guy that's like, well, how do you do this? Let's see if we, let's give it a shot. Pro tip or pro hack, you know, for all you out there listening, all that shit's bullshit. Like none of the things in the Eric's cookbook work. I tried every single one of them 50 different ways. Uh, maybe we were doing it wrong, but we, we thought we were following instructions. But again, pre-internet, but I called every person I knew. And they're like, oh, yeah, we tried that too. It doesn't work. But evidently, you know, if you're looking for a good DMT high, and I, I believe there's probably easier ways to get it than licking a toad. I think there's a lot of plants that naturally secrete DMT and there's certainly plenty of guys that are, you know, synthetically producing it, but, uh, you know, in a pinch, find that Colorado river toad. I guess, I guess, but you know, listen to the, I figure if you're doing it, you just better be someplace where you can hang out and listen to some good music and dance. I agree. That leads us into our next clip, huh? Another new year's special. Here we go, kids. there ever been a mashup with the Grateful Dead and, and great singers that, that weren't awesome? But I mean, the Neville brothers, come on, that's like, they're practically brothers with the Grateful Dead in terms of their music style and what they play and they play each other's tunes and, you know, Ico Ico and Fayo on the Bio and Brother John and, you know, and all of a sudden you just got, there's so much great music there. And you were at that show, huh? That was 1231.87 from Oakland. It was kind of a, like a, uh, a Cajun Bayou, you know, I don't know if it was the third set or late second set, but I think it was um, uh, Women Are Smarter, Ico, into um, something into Do You Want to Dance. It was a big, big combination of Cajun tunes back to back to back, I think. 
it was a great night and it was a lot of fun. I had just started practicing law that year. I passed the bar, got myself a job. And I said, you know what? I got to go to New Year's. <laughs> the real world is okay, but I got to jump back into that other puddle really fast. And there's no better way to do it than New Year's Eve. And so a whole group of buddies of mine and I went out and we stayed at the house of a buddy who was actually on the East Coast with his wife and, and wasn't available to go. But we wound up having a really nice place to stay. So it worked out well for everybody. And, and toads, no toads? How did you do that New Year's? Uh, no, there, there were no toads that New Year's, but uh, I, I believe that uh, there was a lot of psilocybin flow around if i recall correctly well, there you go that, that, that once again and i don't always recall but it seems like that would be the call for that night it seems to be a little bit easier than than finding toads in uh, oakland california but it's not so you can't do it i'm sure there's some you know creative person out there that's uh, in the toad game <laughs> that's you never know but think about it rob you could you could start the first toad petting farm toad licking farm come to the farm you know and you get to, you get to lick the toad i got a corner of the toad market i like this idea if if, uh, if Everything else I'm doing professionally doesn't pan out, Larry. There's always toads. Or so. look, what about in the in these new uh, you know consulting uh, uh, um, consum consumption lounges that are opening all over the place? What if you have a toad room? There you go. There you go. Weed to your left, mushrooms to your right. Toads are in the back room. Be careful. <laughs> the, the, the little caveat emptor on the uh, on the door. If you know whatever happens in there, we're, we're no longer responsible. Right. What what you taste is what you get, but what you get is pretty damn yeah. good. Sign the waiver. Enjoy the back room. And happy new year. Yeah. Listen, that's uh that's a business too, for sure. Wow. Exactly. Okay. Yeah, so uh so that the Nevels then came out and played the uh played to the dead at least a few New Year's and I think always did something a little bit different. Uh the reason I love that clip is I don't know if you got a chance to really listen to the drumming. And the drumming has that really cool, like thick, full elastic sound to it. So it has like that, you know, kind of reverb sound to it. And Garcia's um, guitar playing sounds really, really similar to uh, some of the guitar playing you hear on Paul Simon's uh, Graceland album, like uh, under uh, under African Skies specifically. I think it has that you know sort of that really cool tone to it. And so it's you know I, I always think that you kind of like play more of the style of whoever your special guest is. You know, if they're playing with Santana, then you know Garcia plays more of like a, a Latin guitar feel. If they're you know playing with with different people, like with you know Steve Miller, there's a, a bit more of that kind of rock and roll sound to it. But in this case. It was a really different like adjustment. It wasn't your standard Ico and Winter Smarter guitar tone. Right. It had a had a different feel to it. It was really cool. Right. It, yes. But I, it, you know, it, ultimately, I think that's one of the things that made Jerry, Jerry was that he wasn't so rigid in the way he played. Far from it. And he was he was skilled and 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 trained and you know, practiced in so many different types of of musical genres that he could step in and, and play with the novels. He could step in and play with Santana. He could step in and play with Paul Simon or Edie Brickell. And no matter who he was playing with, it just sounded like he belonged there and was part of the group. And, you know, he added what he added, but it, it never, it never overpowered you. It just very nicely added to it. Did you ever get the feeling, speaking of Edie Brickell, did you ever get a feeling that uh, her guitar player was just a huge Garcia fan? There's so many times I listen to Edie Brickell and I think like that guitar sounds so much in tone like Garcia's guitar does. Well, you know, look, they had a chance to record with him, so why not? Yeah, I know that um, What I Am, I think, was her big hit, but uh, but that very much has, like, that envelope fader um, pedal-like sound that, uh, that Garcia would do on, on Shakedown or on Estimated that, uh, you know, if you listen to that guitar solo, you're like, that could be Garcia playing that guitar solo for sure. Yep, 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 I think so. I think, but that's, you know, the beauty of the music, right? Then you have other musicians who pick up on, Jerry's style and now they integrated however they went into their music but 
you know, in, in my opinion, all it does is just make their music better. Yeah, I mean, that's my point. I think Edie's guitar player, you know, listened to Garcia enough to say, okay, like that's the uh, that's the style I'm going to bring to my playing. But uh, you know, when I first heard that solo, I was quite like quite convinced at the time. Like, is that Garcia? Like, you know, that has to be Jerry playing on the song. And uh, it wasn't, you know, that was before like Edie had uh, married Paul Simon and kind of like, you know, like, I was thinking at the time that she was like a relatively young new artist, um, but obviously has a lot of influences from, you know, 60s and 70s musicians, including uh, her own husbands. And, and, you know, and look, you know, we talk about, uh, you know, we've been talking a lot about Trey, you know, mixing it up with younger musicians, you know, like Goose and Billy Strings and stuff like that. But this was, you know, this was Jerry doing his thing. 30 years ago, 35 years ago with, you know, new artists like Edie Brickell and, and others that he would play with or, you know, would come play with them. And it, it's just more, I think, the same about, you know, kind of helping influence the next generation of musicians. And, you know, when we as fans get to, you know, be right in the middle of the crossfire and experience it all, then it's just even better. You know, it's wonderful on, on vinyl, but it, live, you can't compare it. It's just, it's, it's a whole other world. Yeah, and so it's one of my favorite things at any show when, when the musician you went to go see brings out a special guest that you like just as much as a musician. And, uh, you know, I've certainly seen a handful of shows that I think are, like, one thing I'll say about Bonnaroo, Bonnaroo's always done a great job of curating that with their, um, with their super jams every year where they've just paired up with other musicians and, and put stuff together. Pete Shapiro's done that really nicely at um, Lockin' Festival as well. And uh, I think the person that does it better than anyone else is still Warren Haynes. Like, Warren always brings different people out. He's, like, on a whole other level. I mean, it's, I saw him one time at, at Bonnaroo where he pulled out, I think, like, 25 other musicians that were playing the festival as well. It was, like, a six-hour set of him just, like, bringing out one person after the other. As cool a unique night as, as anything you're ever going to see. And those are all people that, you know, invite Warren to come play with them. And I think it was just a night where he's like, all right, you guys are all here. Let's let's do this. And just pulled, like, one musician after another and just, you know, played their music, which is incredible. So it's uh, one of my favorite things is, you know, not only when, when you bring a guest up, but you actually then play their music. True. That's that's really good. And, and, and I have to say with the dead, I mean, with Dylan, certainly, but usually that wasn't so much the case. It would be people coming up to play dead tunes with the dead. And, you know, it's got me thinking that maybe in the next week or two here, we ought to, we'll sit down and curate a show of uh, great moments when, when the dead are joined on stage by other musicians. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, we just got a little bit of that back-to-back with, uh, with, with Etta James and Tower of Power and then with the Nevils right after that. But, you know, I got to see, I think, probably 20 different musicians come up and play with those guys. And I also got to see people come out and, and do spoken word, like Ken Nordeen and, you know, other, like, cool stuff that uh, – you never never knew what you're going to get. And it's funny because when you talk to a lot of musicians, a lot of them, you know, you're like, oh, you guys should really think about playing with that person. Like, yeah, you know. Like they're, they're really careful about who they want to play with, even if they're in the same town as someone else they know has a night off that night. And you're like, oh, that'd, that'd be a great pairing. You should invite them. I was like, yeah, and then we're just going to play our own show. Like there's, they're really, like, even if they know it'd be really fun for the audience, uh, oftentimes there's an ego attached to, we just want to play our own music. Um, and that's why I always thought it was really fun getting to see different musicians go out there and play with the Grateful Dead. Usually, usually a horn player more often than not. I think I saw, you know, three different horn players between James Murray and uh, Branford and Clarence, and uh, I think there's one uh, or Ornette Coleman as uh, as horn players, which is always a great addition to uh, to any show. Yeah, and when they'd um, um, come to St. Louis, they'd always get Johnny Johnson out to play, come and play keyboard with them. So you know, they would tap into local icons and stuff like that, and. Uh, and do a great job, although they never could get, you know, Chuck Berry's also from just outside of St. Louis, and they could never get Chuck Berry to to come and play with them, but, you know, that's okay, I, at least not in St. Louis. They may have played together once. I can't 
Don't know if I'm right about that or not, but not in St. Louis. Well, if you uh, if you listen to Jim Marty, Chuck Berry came out multiple times. <laughs> well, that's true. Quick reference to our uh, our founder and uh, uh, patron saint of the show, Jim Marty from Colorado, or no longer from Colorado, now from Mesquite, Nevada. The one time I did see Chuck Berry play with the Grateful Dead was in Portland Meadows. I won't say either 1993 or 1994, but uh, Chuck never actually came out and played with him that night. Uh, it was just he was the opening act. You know, I think Chuck Berry was very private like that in some ways and, you know, very protective of his stuff. But, you know, look, there's no greater honor in my mind than having the Grateful Dead cover your song. So uh, that's a pretty good thing any way you look at it. And, um, yeah, you know, at the end of the day, that's what New Year's Eve was for. You know, it was it's a night when everybody wants to be out doing something and not everybody always had gigs. But, you know, they could always find a welcoming open arm at a Grateful Dead show and, uh, you know, and come in and party with the team and the crowd. Yep, for sure. Well, the one thing that stinks about all Grateful Dead nights, especially New Year's, is that eventually they do come to an end. And, you know, while the party went through uh, through most of the show, oftentimes they'd slow it down towards the end. So I think as we, we wind this one down, we'll we'll talk about kind of the, uh, the the way they closed out nights. But before we do, I'm sure you've been seeing, Larry, you and I have been talking about this now for the last you know, year or so, uh, when safe banking was going to go through. And it appears as of... Um, this week that very likely we're not going to see it happen in this lame duck session of Congress. And uh, as disappointing as, as that is, I think it's made even more so based on the fact that everybody was so convinced that this time was going to happen. You know, it's uh, usually, usually I'm the cynic that says not a chance. They'll never make it through the Senate. This time I was getting so much information coming out of DC of people saying, Oh no, no, this time it's, it's going, it's going to go through the national defense authorization act. And then it was, they're going to attack it on the omnibus um, spending package or we even might have the votes to pass as a standalone bill. As of probably, you know, right 40 years, uh, it appears that that's probably no longer the case, not if you've heard differently there. No, I haven't heard differently. And, and I remember because when you said you were feeling optimistic, I called you on that because I'm like, you're, you're going way off, way off line here for yourself. And I, I take no credit one way or the other with any of this. I just have a consistent attitude of, you know, I'll believe it when I see it. And not to say that it can't happen and not to say that they're not, you know, hovering right over the edge of it. And, and theoretically, any time they could, you know, finally slap a version together or attach it to something where they feel comfortable finally letting it go through. But it, it seems to be coming, you know, more and more a, uh, a political football and, you know, everybody's kicking it around and, um, you know, here comes big Mitch McConnell, you know, barreling down the side of a joint, ready to jump in and, you know, tackle it and, and knock it apart and do whatever he can with it or whoever is, you know, holding it up this time around. But at the end of the day, come on, it, it, it shouldn't be that we're not even talking about legalizing marijuana, for God's sakes. We're just talking about protecting the people and helping the people who are operating in a lawful manner under state law, which by definition has to, you know, comport to all of the, uh, well, at least what used to be the Cole Memorandum, you know, federal prosecution points. But, you know, most states, I think, still go out of their way to, to try. What the hell is wrong with providing safe banking? That's all I want to know. Yeah, I'll go a step further than that. What the hell is wrong with the, the senators that, that can't get across the line on this? We've got 59 of them. We need 60. And what the hell is wrong with, with Chuck Schumer for not being able to whip one more vote? You know, your, your job as a majority leader is to be able to reach across the aisle and, and do something to get these guys going. You know, the nine that you have on the other side were already on the other side before this started. And now you're hearing this new lip service like, oh, well, we're, we're actually, we've got a, a lot of support in this with the Republican Congress next go around. And the, the, uh, the Dems will have more people in the Senate by a count of one. You know, I really don't see how that's going to move the deal. Well, no, not, well, it depends what you consider Kristen Cinema. Well, I think Cinema will still vote for safe. But yes, you know, like, but either way, you know, they're claiming that they've got a good shot at this, but 
Look, I I no longer believe it's happening. I no longer believe that <clears throat> these guys have the vote to do you know to do anything in terms of. I mean, this is minor legislation. If you can't get minor legislation passed, there's no chance we're getting more major pieces of legislation passed. And, and by the way, Schumer screwed this up to begin with. You know, if Schumer had actually passed it last year, literally last year at this time, which he could have done, he had the votes to do it and didn't want to do it at the time because he wanted more sweeping legislation to pass. Well, guess what? Now we're a year past that. You can't get it done this time, and nor can you get any of the other more sweeping legislation you're hoping to get done. So, you know, politically, what have you accomplished? The answer is absolutely freaking nothing. So it's uh, it's a little bit embarrassing to uh, to the Dems. She's certainly a big black eye on Schumer. Uh, we can blame McConnell all we want. You know, it's, it's fun to blame McConnell. But ultimately, I'm, I'm putting the, <clears throat> the pressure squarely on the Dems' hands uh, that they should have gotten this done when they could. And note to selves in the future, if you guys want to pass something and you've got the chance to do it, don't wait. Don't keep stacking new stuff onto it. Just get it done and then live to fight another day and then pass the next piece of legislation. And uh, this is a, a one chance where they, they had it. And the people are still saying there's a, there's an outside chance this thing passes. But, you know, if, if you were to, to ask me, I'd say this thing at this point is, is pretty much uh, knocking on heaven's door. <laughs> Well, I, I think you're right. I think that's a great lead into the end here. But I just have to say that the worst part about all of this is there may not be an issue currently in Congress that enjoys more overall bipartisan support, at least among the voting people and, and certainly a, a number of politicians, than legalizing marijuana. There, there's not a lar large outcry. There's not a, a big you know, morality religious movement that's organized. There's definitely groups that don't support it. But we, we don't have big, huge paid for, you know, big money TV ad groups coming out and, you know, showing us this is your brain on drugs anymore kind of stuff. They, the, the politicians just can't get out of their way and get it done. And, and I'm willing to accept that a lot of it falls on the Democrats and on Schumer and those guys, too. You know, and it's, you're right. It is easy to pick fun at McConnell. And, you know, it, it's not always fair, although with him, I don't care if it's fair or not. But right. I mean, it's just it is what it is. And for God's sakes, you know, these are the same idiots that passed the 2018 farm bill and then wonder how it's possible that Delta eight is around. So, you know, this isn't complicated, guys. Let's just make this a better place for everybody and move the hell on. Well, I'm hopeful that we, we do. I'm hopeful that 2023 brings us uh, new legislation that we're going to see quite a bit of progress uh, as we have in the years past. You know, look, for all the for all the things we're, we're disappointed about. Each new year does bring a new chance for uh, expanded cannabis legislation. We've gotten it for the last 20-something years in a row. I'd expect we're going to continue to see it on a domestic level, on a national level. I'd expect to see um, an industry that hopefully is, is going to hit what, what I hope is rock bottom here pretty soon and, uh, and start clawing its way back out and really turning into the industry we hope it is. But I go into every new year hopeful. I go into every new year in general hopeful about you know, what can be accomplished in, in this next year. And uh, this one's no different. So, you know, from my end, uh, wishing both of you guys a very happy new year and uh, a, a very prosperous new year for 2023. And all you out there, uh, the same. And may everyone have a, a better year this year than they had last. Well, thank you. I would echo that sentiment to all of our listeners as well and uh, to both of you and uh you know, really everybody. And look, we talk about all this stuff all the time and it's true, but you know, the thing about the Grateful Dead and cannabis is that they both share one thing in common is that is that they are uniters. They bring people together. They are not wedges. They don't, you know, uh, Rush Limbaugh notwithstanding, you know, there aren't too many people, uh, you know, uh, around who, who 
dislike them as much as the fact that they're, you know, we hear about the Ann Coulters of the world going to see the Grateful Dead. You know, we hear about people on the right who are big marijuana smokers. And of course they are. Why shouldn't they be? You know, and, and these are things that unite. And one of the things I love about this show is that we're talking about two topics that are so positive and so play such an important role in bringing large groups of people together. And, and, you know, I'm willing to bet you can go to a Grateful Dead show and you can swing a stick and hit a Republican. And if for one night we can all sit there and just be having a good time and enjoying ourselves, that's the greatest thing there is. There's nothing to fight about. It's just, let's go have fun, hear great music, enjoy some great weed. And at least for one night, you know, all the problems are resolved. We'll worry about tomorrow, tomorrow. Here, here. Well, happy new year to you both. And, um, May we have a terrific 2023, and thanks to all of our listeners out there for sticking with us all through 2022. And uh, we've got all sorts of fun stuff planned for you for this coming year. We've got all sorts of guests that we're starting to line up and uh, lots of topics that Larry and I are kicking around that will be sometimes very cannabis-centric, sometimes very uh, politically-centric, but uh, very business, cannabis business-centric. But uh, we've got some great ideas for uh, 2023, and we hope to, uh, to share them with you. Tell your friends. And with that, uh, I will end it with uh, the fate of 2022's cannabis bill, the Safe Banking Act, and uh, tone it down with a, a very common way that the Grateful Dead would say goodnight at the end of a long, raucous evening where they toned it down to make sure everyone would sort of mellow their night out before leaving the venue. And with that, uh, I leave you the, the end of 12-31-1991 uh, from the Oakland Coliseum, the final music that they played on a New Year's night as a band uh, with a little bit of uh, Bob Dylan's classic Knockin' on Heaven's Door. Knock, knock, knockin' on Heaven's Door Knock, knock, knockin' on Heaven's Door Just like so many times Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. 99.9% of our DNA is identical. It's a 0.1% that truly makes us different and unique. And that's what the show is about. Find out that 0.1% about your favorite guests. Find out what music they like their first cannabis experience, and even what their room looked like growing up. But more importantly, or as important, their journey. Learn what makes them unique on Everything is Personal.